beautiful vacation with your mom and your friend. You're so excited to get to spend some one-on-one -on -one time with them and you go sightseeing and have an amazing time together. But where you are, although beautiful, definitely has a dark side. And little do you know, that dark side will cost you your life. Hello, my fellow divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Dive, where we take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi. Thank you so much for listening and watching. If you're new, welcome to the water. We're so happy to have you. If you're returning, welcome back to the water. We missed you, and thank you for coming back to take another deep dive into crime with us. Please check out our episode description. There you will find the links to my TikTok and Instagram, as well as a link to help us out over here at Crime Dive. You can also find my email in the episode description for any business inquiries. And please be sure to like, comment, share, subscribe, download if you're listening on podcast platforms. And don't forget to turn on your post notifications. We upload videos on Saturdays at 10.30 in the morning, and we upload our audio episodes on Tuesday, very, very early in the morning before y'all go to work so that we all have something to listen to. I don't know about you guys, but every time it's November 1st, the day after Halloween, which is today, is giving Christmas. Honestly, I feel like it's Christmas. Is that just me? I don't know. I'm still gonna keep my background up for now until I find something else. I might take the little evil mansion down and put something else in its place. I'm not really sure, but trust me, for Christmas, I'm going all out. So you only have to worry about it because that's my favorite holiday. I posted a surprise Halloween bonus episode on Halloween night. So if you haven't watched that yet, go ahead and check it out. By the time I upload this video, it'll been a week since I did that. So go ahead and watch and listen to that if you haven't already. It's pretty interesting. I talk about very shocking deathbed confessions. But today we're going to be talking about a very shocking case that gripped the nation back in 1990 that took place in California, the Yosemite murders. But with that, let's get right into the case. In February of 1999, 42-year-old Carol Sund decided to take her daughter, 15-year-old Julie Sund, and her friend, 16-year-old Sylvina Peloso, to Yosemite National Park in order to visit. Sylvina was actually visiting the Sund family from Argentina, and her parents were Carol Sund's friends. Once Sylvina visited, Carol said, you know what, I want to take you sightseeing. I want you to see everything that California has to offer. It's a beautiful state, and they do have a lot to offer. So she took Julie and Sylvina to Disneyland, San Francisco before finally going to Yosemite National Park. Now Carol had actually been to Yosemite National Park a few times already so she kind of knew the ropes and where to go and where to stay and things like that. So she really knew what the girls should do in order to have a fun time and they did. They went hiking in the mountains, they went ice skating, they hung out, they had a great time together. By the end of their first day on February 15th 1999 they stayed at the Cedar Lodge Motel just outside of Yosemite National Park. Normally Carol stayed inside the park but for whatever reason this time she decided to stay outside of the park. So let's talk about the Cedar Lodge Motel a little bit. As I said, it's a motel that sits right outside of Yosemite and during the summer months, which is usually when there's way more tourists visiting Yosemite, it's hustling and bustling. There's a lot of people and it's just a great place for people to stay in order to go to the park because it's literally right there. But during the winter months, which is when Carol, Julie, and Sylvina went, it's almost like a ghost town. Yosemite is already pretty remote, but when it's in the winter months and there's not a lot of people there, it can kind of have this eerie vibe to it. This also has a lot to do with the type of people that stay at the Cedar Lodge Motel when there's really no tourists around. A lot of times it can attract ex-cons, felons, people who are evading the law, or people who just want to get away to a very remote area where nobody knows them because they have a pretty 
checkered past. It attracted a pretty seedy crowd. When there's three women staying there, it can definitely be a place that they might wanna watch out for or just avoid altogether. The following day on February 16th, Carol, Julie, and Silvino were set to continue their sightseeing tour of Yosemite National Park, but they didn't show up for it. Not to mention Carol's husband and Julie's father, Yen's son, he hadn't heard from them all day, which was not like them. He knew that something was off. So he decided to call his in-laws, Carol's parents, and see if they had heard from Carol. But they said, no, we haven't either, which was also very strange. They realized that there was no sign of the girls anywhere. Nobody had seen them or heard from them since the night before around 7 30 p.m around the time they returned back to their room instantly their family knew something was wrong and at that moment they contacted police who began an all-out search for all three women it was literally like they just vanished and not only did they vanish but so did their car carol had rented a 1999 red pontiac grand prix from the airport and that was gone too Police began searching for the girls all throughout the Sierra Nevada mountains, and it was one of the biggest searches of this area in history, and they found nothing. Carol's parents were absolutely terrified that something bad had happened to all three women, and they offered a $250,000 reward for their safe return, as well as a $50,000 reward for any information leading to them being found. Somebody has had to see some of this, something that's gone on. They can't just disappear. This is my firstborn. My wife, I've been married for 21 years, and you know, it's uh, just imagine what it's like. It's terrible. What keeps you going through all of this? Love, I guess. Police continued to search using dogs, helicopters, and even a Navy aircraft. But again, they found nothing. Nobody really knew what happened to the girls, but in the beginning, they really didn't suspect foul play, mostly because their car was missing. So everyone kind of just assumed that maybe they got in an accident and fell off a cliff and they just couldn't be reached. That was what a lot of people believed in the beginning. But over time, as the girls still were not found alive, it became clear that something much more sinister may have happened to them. Police decided to assemble a task force to further investigate this case and focus more time and attention as well as their resources on it. The task force decided that maybe they should look at where the women were last seen, which was the Cedar Lodge Motel. So they began questioning employees about that night, seeing if they knew anything or if they saw anything crazy. And they came across an employee named Billy Joe Strange. He worked as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge. He had a bit of a checkered past. He was out on parole and they felt like he may be worth looking into. He also had access to all the guests' rooms. I mean, being an employee, he had the key. So it was possible that he could have gained entry into their room and taken advantage of them. So police decided to arrest him on a parole violation completely unrelated to the case. So that way they could get him in a room and question him as well as give him a polygraph test, which he in fact failed. When Billy Joe Strange found out he failed his polygraph test, he was about to throw hands with the polygraph examiner, which is just like, why, what did they do? And once the FBI saw that he had this reaction to failing, they had a feeling that he may be involved in their disappearances. But after investigating further, there was really no evidence tying him to it and they were able to clear him of any involvement and they let him go. 
Police then decided to question another handyman who worked at the Cedar Lodge, 37-year-old Carrie Stainer. Carrie was said to be a very likable, relaxed, chill guy. He was very nice, he was a hard worker, and he was pretty handsome and kind of popular with the ladies. So when they asked Carrie, they pretty much ruled him out instantly, but they continued to speak to him because they needed somebody to help them gain access to all the guests' rooms. And Carrie also had a master key to the Cedar Lodge. So he takes police around and walks them through the motel so they can get a look at where Carol, Julie, and Sylvina were last seen before they disappeared. But what the police didn't know was that Carrie Stainer was actually related to Steven Stainer. And if you don't know who that is, he was the subject of a huge missing persons case back in the early 70s. In 1972, a seven-year-old Steven Stainer was kidnapped by a man named Kenneth Parnell. He was held captive for seven years, and during that time, he was sexually taken advantage of by this grown man. Eventually, when Steven turned 14 years old, his abductor ended up kidnapping another little boy. Five five-year-old Timothy White. Of course, Timothy White was so terrified and he was so scared because he was taken away from his family. And Stephen knew that he did not want Timothy to go through what he went through. He made the very courageous decision to take Timothy in the middle of the night and escape to a police station. And when he stumbled into the police station, he said the famous words, I know my name is Steven. And after seven years, a now 14 year old Steven Stainer, along with five year old Timothy White, were reunited with their families. There was a lot of coverage on this case back in the 70s when Steven was first taken and back in the 80s when he was found. It was a pretty big deal. And it was an even bigger deal when he was actually returned to his family. Now, Carrie was actually retelling this story to a news reporter who was staying at the Cedar Lodge Motel while covering the Sun Peloso disappearance and her name was Mary Ellen Geist and they were in the hot tub together just talking you know she was using it because she was staying there he was allowed to use it because he worked there but once she asked him about the son Peloso disappearance case she said that Carrie's face turned dark instantly she said it was like a physical change in his face that made her so scared she jumped out of the hot tub ran back to her room locked the door and she piled a whole bunch of furniture in front of it because it scared her that much. And she even ended up calling the police to make sure that he was in fact ruled out. And police said, oh yeah, he's ruled out. He's been helping us with the case, he's fine. So Mary Ellen decided to calm down a little bit, but deep down she knew that there was something off about Carrie. On February 19th, 1999, four days after the women went missing, Carol's son's wallet was found at a busy intersection in Modesto, California, which was 70 miles away from Yosemite. Whoever put it there definitely looked like they threw it out of this window on purpose in order to get rid of it. And now at that point, police theorized that maybe Carol and the girls drove to Modesto from Yosemite and were carjacked before being taken by force. The FBI decides to focus their attention on the Modesto area and any career criminals around there that may have had something to do with their disappearance. And they came across two half-brothers named Rufus Dykes and Michael Larwick, two habitual substance users who had a very lengthy criminal record that may have related to cases just like the Sun Peloso case. Now they were brought in for questioning and Rufus Dykes actually ended up admitting that he was in fact responsible for the disappearance and subsequent murders of Carol Sund, Julie Sund, and Sylvina Peloso. 
So police were like, wow, we got our guys. But when they asked Rufus to elaborate on how he did this, he wouldn't. And when he would give a few details, they didn't line up with the evidence that police had found. So much so that they were able to say, we know that that didn't happen. Rufus would kind of change his story to fit the police evidence. And eventually it got to a point where they were like, okay, I don't think these are the guys. I mean, clearly they're confessing just for attention or whatever reason. I still don't understand why people do that, but they did it and police were just not buying it. However, the lead FBI agent on the case, James Maddock, he was very convinced that he had his guy and that these were the people that were responsible. But there were some people on the task force that were like, I don't know, this just doesn't make sense. They're clearly changing their stories a lot. But the lead investigator was like, nope, these are our guys, we got them. A few weeks later on March 19th, after Rufus and Michael were arrested, police received a call from a hunter saying that there was a burned out car in the woods that looked very suspicious. So police decided to go to the area and they immediately recognized the car as being the red 1999 Pontiac Grand Prix that Carol's son had rented from the airport. It was completely melted from the inside out and it was absolutely destroyed. But once they looked inside the trunk, they found what appeared to be two burned skeletons. And after using dental records, they were able to positively identify the remains as being those of 42-year-old Carol Sund and 16-year-old Sylvina Peloso. The car was found just a few miles from the Cedar Lodge Motel and it was clear that whatever had happened to them was done intentionally. Carol's father came out and spoke about the grief that he was feeling and it really shook him to the core. I mean, he could not believe that his daughter was gone and had passed away. I feel terrible. I'm supposed to die. <coughs> Excuse me. And Sylvina, she was visiting from Argentina and she was so far from home. And imagine sending your child all the way over there and they never return. Horrible, horrible. It's a horrible way to be found and it's a horrible way to go. But there was still one thing that police didn't understand. Where was Julie Sund? She was still missing. She was not found in the Pontiac Grand Prix along with her mother and her friend. Police assumed maybe the kidnapper was still keeping her alive and holding her hostage somewhere. So they worked immediately to try to find her before she met the same fate. While they were searching for Julie, the FBI ended up receiving a letter. And on this letter, it was a drawn out map that it had an X and an arrow pointed to a spot called Vista Point. And in the corner, written very sinisterly, it said, we had fun with this one. Police immediately go to the indicated spot that was on the map and it was there that they found the body of 15 year old Julie Sund. She was found to have her throat completely slit to the point where she was almost decapitated. It's bad enough when a family member passes away, but for it to happen in the way that it happened to these three women just makes it so much harder to come to terms with to find out something like that happened to such a beloved family member. I can only imagine how their families felt. So clearly whoever did this was trying to taunt police by sending them a letter and pointing out exactly where Julie was and then even putting that really creepy note on the side of it talking about we had fun with this one. I mean, it was just sick. It was absolutely sick. 
obviously residents around the area were completely terrified that something like this had happened. Of all places in Yosemite National Park, I mean, Yosemite was a very safe community, but police said there's no danger to the public. We have a confession, everything is fine. So people definitely let their guards down a little bit, even though they were a little bit scared. That was until there was another victim who lived and worked near Yosemite National Park. 26-year-old Joey Armstrong worked as a naturalist at the Yosemite Institute. She absolutely loved nature and anything that had to do with it. She would teach children about the beauty of Yosemite and the importance of preserving it. She lived in a little green cabin not too far from the park with her boyfriend and another roommate. And they lived a pretty natural lifestyle and they absolutely loved being there. I mean, Joey was a nature girl through and through. On the night of July 21st, 1999, just a few months after Carol, Julie, and Sylvina were found, Joey was alone at the cabin getting ready to meet up with some friends that night. But when she never showed up, her friends decided to call 911 because that just wasn't like her. Police immediately descended upon Joey's little green cabin and they saw that her door was wide open, which is never a good sign. When they went inside, it was clear that some sort of struggle had ensued. They also found broken sunglasses on the floor and there was music still playing inside Joey's house, almost as if she had left unexpectedly or against her will. And Joey was nowhere to be found, even though her truck was still outside in the driveway. The following day, police began searching for Joey through the woods surrounding her cabin, and they found some disturbed greenery that almost looked like somebody had been chased through the woods. I mean, it looked like people were walking where they probably shouldn't be because there was so much brush. Eventually, they found some car keys, but just above the car keys, they ended up finding a body in a creek. The body was bound with duct tape, and it was clear that something horrible had happened to this person because they were found with no head they were still able to confirm through DNA testing that the body belonged to 26-year-old Joey Armstrong. When police informed her mother, she couldn't believe it, so she had to ask them what color was the hair on the body. She said, did the body have red hair? Because Joey had red hair. And unfortunately, police could not confirm this because the body had no head. And it was there that Joey's mother found this out and she was absolutely beside herself. I could not begin to imagine the pain of finding out that your child died in such a horrific way. Police unfortunately could not find her head at that time, but they were going to keep looking for it to bring Joey home. The surrounding public was pretty confused as to how someone else could have been murdered in a very similar way in a nearby area when police were claiming that they already had the suspects in custody. I mean, it didn't make any sense. So did they have the right suspects in custody or was the killer still on the loose? The police was dead set that these cases were not related, that Joey's murder had nothing to do with the Sun Peloso case. But the public wasn't buying it. I mean, they just happened so close to each other and they were so similar. So they were like, no, there's no way these cases are not related. Not to mention, this is a very safe area. Stuff like this does not happen here. So what are the chances that they would happen within a few months of each other and have nothing to do with each other? The FBI decided to go back to Joey's house to collect more evidence. And it was there that they ended up collecting the broken sunglasses, some hair and fibers that could have belonged to the person who may have done this to her, as well as taking pictures of footprints and tire tracks that were found in Joey's driveway that clearly did not belong to her truck. 
Within hours of Joey being found, police received a tip that someone had seen a blue 1979 Scout SUV parked very close to Joey's little green cabin the night she was killed. Now, police didn't immediately assume that this person was a suspect, but they did want to speak to them in case they may have known anything or seen anything out of the ordinary that could give them some answers. And police ended up finding this vehicle parked at the Cedar Lodge Motel. And it didn't take them long to find out that the vehicle belonged to none other than handyman Carrie Stainer. Now, it wasn't odd that Carrie could be found near Joey's cabin because after all, he did work and live at the Cedar Lodge Motel. But police still wanted to ask him and make sure and see if he knew anything because they had already been talking to him before. But when they asked him if he was there, he said no. This struck police as odd because People knew he was there, he was seen there. So why did he say no? I mean, he should have just said yes and been like, I don't know anything though. But he said, I wasn't there and I don't know anything. And this struck police as odd. He allowed them to search inside his truck, but they didn't find anything. And Carrie was holding a backpack and police asked if they could search it but he refused to let them. Now they couldn't search it without a warrant, but they still wanted to take it with them. So that way when they got a warrant, they could look inside. In the meantime though, they were gonna take pictures of Carrie's tires to see if they matched the tracks that were found outside of Joey's house, since he claimed he wasn't there. Now by this point, Joey's head had not been found and police feared that it may be inside the bag but they were gonna get a warrant for that and find out for sure. And after matching Carrie's tire tracks to the ones found in front of Joey's house, they were a perfect match. So now they knew that Carrie had lied about being there. That same night that Carrie was questioned by police, he sold all of his belongings and vanished. He went on the run. And when police found out that he had done this, they instantly knew that Carrie Stainer may have been responsible for Joey Armstrong's murder and could be responsible for the murders of Carol and Julie Sund as well as Sylvina Peloso. Once police got a warrant to search inside the backpack, they didn't find anything out of the ordinary. They found suntan oil, sunflower seeds, and a book. So luckily Joey's head was not in there. However, they did end up finding her head further down the canal where her body was found. Police at this point are desperately searching for Carrie because they're afraid that he may offend again. I mean, at this point, he has absolutely nothing to lose. They're pretty sure that he was responsible for the murder, especially now that he's gone on the run and they don't want him to do it again. They put out an all points bulletin looking for 37 year old Carrie Stainer. And a woman three hours away from Yosemite ends up calling police from a nudist colony saying, hey, this guy is here right now, I've seen him. So police traveled three hours to this nudist colony and they take Carrie Stainer all the way back to Yosemite for questioning. Carrie's brought back to the station and as he's getting ready to take a polygraph test, he decides to just skip it. He says, you know what? I don't want a polygraph test. I just wanna to talk to the agent alone. And he says he has a lot of information regarding the Sund Peloso case. But before he gives up this information, he requests something very, very strange and very, very disturbing. So disturbing that I can't even say it without probably getting banned on YouTube. He asked for material showing children in a very inappropriate way. He asked an FBI agent for this. And of course the agent is like, I, I can't, I can't give you that. What the hell? I, I can't do that. He's like, how about a pepperoni pizza and a Coke? And Carrie agrees to that. To have an appetite after asking for something so disgusting is just, oh my God. Like when I heard that, I was like, 
what he asked an fbi agent for that and thought he was actually gonna get it but i think he kind of figured he wouldn't but it's the fact that he asked anyway like i said carrie clearly knew he had absolutely nothing to lose and after he ate his pizza he said to the agent this will be my last meal as a free man and with that the agent starts a tape recorder and carrie begins confessing Let's talk about what he said about Joey's murder. On the night of July 21st, 1999, Carrie was near a bridge and a creek that was right next to Joey's house. And he said that he saw her little green cabin and she was outside of it, loading things into her truck. So he decides to approach her and he asks her about Bigfoot. According to Carrie, he had seen Bigfoot in the area a few years before and he wanted to ask her if she had seen anything. But Joey said, no, I haven't, but I think my roommates might've. And at that moment, Carrie uses this as an opportunity to find out if Joey is alone. So he says, are they here? Can we ask them? But Joey says, no, they're not here. I'm by myself. And at that moment, Carrie pulls out his revolver and puts it to Joey's head. And he orders her inside to her bedroom where he bounds and gags her before taking her back outside into his truck. He drives her through the woods. As he does this, Joey is fighting so hard. She was a nature girl. She was an outdoors girl. So she was very, very strong. She was not gonna go without a fight. She was fighting Carrie every step of the way. And Carrie admitted she was a very tough girl. Joey fought so much while she was tied up in the car that she ended up falling out of the passenger window. And at that moment, she decided to escape. And she begins running away from Carrie as fast as she possibly can. But at that moment, Carrie gets very scared. So he goes inside his book bag that contained his revolver, his duct tape, and his knife, which he called his kill kit, and he caught up to Joey. But Joey was not giving up. She was very strong and she continued to fight him very, very hard. And this made Carrie so mad that he said he wanted to kill her in a very brutal way. So he ended up taking his knife and beheading her before throwing her body in the creek. So finally, we know what happened to Joey Armstrong. Then he goes on to detail what he did to Carol and Julie Sund and Sylvina Peloso. According to Carrie, on the night of February 15, 1999, he was walking the grounds of the Cedar Lodge Motel when he looked through a window of room 509 and saw Carol, Julie, and Sylvina sitting on the bed. And he instantly noticed that there was no man there. So he used this as his opportunity to take advantage of them. He went back to his room and got his kill kit before knocking on the door, saying that he was maintenance and that there was a leak in the room above theirs. So he had to go in their bathroom and fix something. Now, Carol was a smart woman. She could instantly tell that something was a little weird. And she said, no, sorry, you're not coming in here. It's nighttime, go away. But Carrie said, look, you can call the front desk if you want. And this gave Carol enough reassurance to let him in the room. Carrie told the FBI agent that once he got inside the room, he went in the bathroom and pretended to fix something. Yeah, I went to the bathroom and checked the fan where I told him to leave probably with me. When I came out of the bathroom, I pulled my gun out. But once he came back out, he was holding a revolver, pointing it at all three women. He tied all three of them up before putting Julie and Sylvina in the bathroom. He left Carol on the bed, bound with duct tape. And at that moment, he strangled her with a rope on the bed. He then took Julie out of the room and put her in another room where he took advantage of her sexually. He left Julie in that room, went back in the original room, took Sylvina 
and killed her the same way he killed Carol. He put both Carol and Sylvina's bodies in the trunk of their 1999 Pontiac before taking Julie, wrapping her in a blanket and putting her in the passenger seat. Now by this point, for whatever reason, he had spared Julie's life and he told her that they had to get out of there. So they're driving through Yosemite. The whole time, Julie has no idea that her friend and mother are dead in the trunk. Carrie said it started to get kind of light outside and the sun started coming up. So he knew that if he was going to do something, he had to do it soon. He stops the car, parks, gets out, and he carries Julie through the woods in this pink blanket. And eventually he sets her down, tells her that he loves her and slits her throat. After that, he drives a little bit further and abandons the car before using money from Carol's wallet to get a cab. Now the cab driver, a woman named Jenny Paul, said that she instantly noticed there was something off about Carrie. He tried to get her to go with him into the woods to look at where he saw Bigfoot once they returned to the Cedar Lodge. And she was like, uh, hell no. And she got the hell out of there and drove away. She instantly knew that there was just something wrong with Carrie and she was not gonna go in the woods alone with him no matter what he said. After Carrie returned to the Cedar Lodge Motel, he used his truck to drive back out to where he ditched the Pontiac and set it on fire. Then he drove through Modesto and got rid of Carol's wallet in the busy intersection in order to throw police off. A few weeks after he got rid of Carol's wallet is when he decided to send the FBI a letter with a map detailing where to find Julie's body. Carrie admitted that he had had the urge to kill women from a very young age. And he would often fantasize about tying them up, pretending that they loved them just to take their life. He also admitted to police that he was sexually taken advantage of by his uncle from a young age. And ever since then, he's had a very confusing, unhealthy, toxic relationship with sex. And in a very shocking twist of events, he admitted to the FBI agent that Carol, Julie, and Sylvina were not his original targets that night. His original target was a woman who worked as a bartender and a waitress at the Cedar Lodge Motel, who he was actually dating. Now this woman had two daughters who were 11 and eight years old. Carrie had been around them, he would buy them gifts and presents and the girls absolutely adored Carrie. But on that particular day, February 15th, Carrie actually tried to kill them, but they had no idea. Turns out a neighbor came and foiled his entire plan before he was able to carry it out. And he had attempted to kill them on three separate occasions. And on his last attempt, which was that day, it ended up getting foiled again. So he just gave up and went back to the Cedar Lodge Motel. But by that point, he was so hyped up. He was so ready to kill because he had had the urge and wasn't able to do it. And that was when he saw Carol, Julie, and Sylvina through the window. And once he saw them, he saw this as an opportunity to feed his urge to kill women. And that's what he did. After six hours of confessing, Carrie was formally arrested and charged with all four murders of the women. People in the surrounding community were absolutely shocked that the nice, handsome handyman from Yosemite was now a serial killer and had killed four innocent women. Carrie agreed to go back to Joey's cabin with the FBI and walk them through what he did leading up to Joey's murder. And the video of this is just so eerie to see. For him to just be there with the police reenacting everything, showing them everything, knowing what went down there, it's just creepy. And he seems to just be so lax, not really care, not really have any remorse. He's almost retelling the story as if he's talking about the weather. 
he was able to lead police directly to the murder weapons in Joey's case and Julie's. Once police saw that he was able to do this, they immediately knew that this was their guy because there was no way that Carrie would have known where the weapons were had he not been the one who put them there. I mean, the police hadn't even found those weapons yet and Carrie took them straight to them. Rufus Dykes and Michael Larwick, the original suspects in the Sun Peloso case, were found to have not been involved in their murders whatsoever. Now, a lot of people were pretty upset with James Maddock, the lead investigator, because he was so dead set on them, even though Rufus's confession was clearly not very reliable. And a lot of people believed that had James Maddock not believed Rufus's very unreliable confession and continued looking for the Yosemite killer, that Joey's life may have been spared. Him not following up with this evidence and using Rufus's confession that clearly made no sense gave the real killer the opportunity to take Joey's life. Carrie Sander underwent two trials, one for Joey and one for Sylvina, Carol, and Julie. And in Joey's case, he ended up pleading guilty to her murder and he was sentenced to life without parole. But for the Sun Peloso case, Carol's parents wanted the death penalty. So at that point, Carrie decided to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. But this entire defense pretty much fell apart because of a forensic pathologist who went on the stand and testified for the prosecution, saying that Carrie knew exactly what he was doing. He took such methodical steps before and after all of the murders to cover them up that there was no way that he didn't know and he wasn't aware. I mean, he was pretty crazy, but he was the smart kind of crazy. The crazy that knew what to do to cover his tracks and was going to do so. And on August 22nd, 2002, Carrie Stamer was convicted of the murders of Carol and Julie Sund and Sylvina Peloso, and he was sentenced to death. He's currently incarcerated at San Quentin Prison in California. Nobody's been executed there, I think since 2006. It's been a really long time, so he will most likely spend the rest of his life there. Carol's parents decided to start the Carol Sun Carrington Memorial Reward Foundation, which was a nonprofit organization that raised money for resources to help look for missing people. Carol Sun came from a very wealthy family and they were able to fund the investigation a little bit more on their end in order to help find the girls. Now, a lot of families don't have access to these funds. Unfortunately, the fund is now defunct because Carol's parents decided to step away, but it did help a lot of families during its operation. Joey Armstrong's mother decided to start the Armstrong Scholars Program, which teaches young women to go out into the wilderness and learn survival skills, something that was so important to Joey. Now that is actually still active and I will leave the link in the episode description so you guys can check it out. It's so amazing that these families were able to turn such deep pain into something so positive and productive in order to help prevent the same things happening to other loved ones. This case is very shocking and so upsetting in so many ways. And if there's some lessons that I hope you take from this, always be vigilant, be on the lookout, trust absolutely no one, leave your curtains closed, your doors locked, and do what you can to not speak to strangers because you never know what someone is planning. But with that, we're gonna go ahead and wrap up today's episode. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you so much for listening and watching, and I hope to see you in the water soon.